Mark chapter 8, verse 1, and I'll read down to verse 21, and then I'll pray. Verse 1, in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, they had nothing to eat. And he called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now for three days, and have had nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. They won't even make it there. And some of them have come from far, far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? This probably sounds very familiar to them. They said, well, seven. And, uh, and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these should also be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up seven broken uh, pieces left over. They took up broken pieces left over and seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he said to them, and, uh, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into a boat with his disciples, and he went to the district of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with, with Jesus seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. He sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and he got into a boat again and he went to the other side. Now, they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring the leftover bread and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive and understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? I broke, when I broke the five loaves with the 5,000, how many baskets full of uh, pieces did you take up? They said to them, him, 12. And he said, the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? That's our text. Let's pray. Lord, um, I, I will confess, God, that there's certain times, this being one of them, when after just reading and reading and rereading this passage, um, I can still read that passage and say, no, Lord, I still don't understand. I mean, what are you trying to say about feeding these people? I pray, God, you would speak to us. I pray, God, today that you would do what I clearly can't do. And I can speak to ears, but only you can speak to hearts. I pray you would speak to hearts today. You would, to closed hearts, you would speak them open to blind eyes, you would say, uh, let there be light. To deaf ears, you would unstop them, that they can hear you. And I know a lot of us, Lord, have different issues with faith and the faith life and trusting and believing when it comes to certain things. I pray, God, that today you would teach us and lead us wherever we're at, no matter where we're at, God. I know there's a lot of people here that uh, don't, don't believe in you. There might be people here that don't believe in you at all. And there's those that do, but struggle with certain aspects of faith. I pray you meet us all where we're at. You can do that, God. Only you can. 
ask that you would use me. We look to you. We thank you. May Christ be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in the book of Mark um, for a while, and we've been saying about the book of Mark that, that Mark, in the, the, the first gospel to be written out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the first one, the oldest one, Mark is writing to give us raw footage of who Jesus really is. It's like the raw footage of who he really is, because Mark's writing predates a, a, a lot of, um, uh, predates the, the, the organization of the church. It predates a lot of the other writings out there. In Mark's writing, it's very, very early after the life and the ministry of Jesus. So we're not seeing a Jesus in the book of Mark that's recast by the secular relativist who might want to water down Jesus' exclusive claims. Like, you know what, you need to cut Jesus in his exclusivity with a little bit of water. We're not getting that Jesus in Mark. Nor are we getting, the, are we looking at the Jesus that the church was allowed to construct and make up. Because Mark was written before what you and I would call the institutionalized church. Jesus, a Jesus that will like back up its political party or even its self-righteousness that's often attached to certain people. This book predates all of that. So in Mark, what you and I have when we study and consider the book of Mark, what we have here is the real Jesus. What he really did and who he really was. Now, if you're a keen observer in the book of Mark, as I was reading that passage, you're like, wait a second, that sounds strangely and oddly familiar, the multiplying of the fish and loaves. Like, that's familiar. I think I've read that before. I think we've talked about that here on Sunday. Mark is... Uh, the only gospel writer who puts both accounts of Jesus feeding the multitude in his book. The first time was in Mark chapter 6. He feeds the 5,000. Here Jesus feeds the 4,000. This is important. The reason why Mark puts both accounts in Mark's story, the reason why he puts both accounts here is because there's something about these feedings that's intimately tied to the nature and the character of who Jesus is. So once we start wrestling with why did Jesus feed the multitude the first time and the second time, we'll start getting a glimpse into who Jesus is and what Christ has come to do. We're supposed to get something from Jesus miraculously feeding people, something about who he is. The first audience was supposed to pick up on something about who he was by being fed, and the current audience, you and me today, are supposed to pick up on it as well. But here's the irony in, in this section. Here's the irony. Still, after witnessing both the feeding miracles, both the 5,000 and the 4,000, and everything that surrounded them, nobody gets who Jesus is. Nobody really comprehends him, especially the people who should get him, the people that are closest to him, the disciples. This is a real problem because Sometimes we think proximity to church or churchy things is how I'll know Jesus. Disciples were the closest human people to Jesus' humanity, and they still didn't get him. And this is a problem. And you and I, like I've read this, this section of Scripture. I will, I've been studying it now for several weeks. I've been wrestling with that last question for two weeks do you still not understand? And you know how many times I've read that and I'm like, no, I don't understand. Like, help me understand. I don't get it. What is it that I'm supposed to get from this passage of Scripture? Well, that's what we'll be dealing with today. What is it that Jesus wants us to understand about these feedings? 
and how, how are we supposed to grasp what's, what Jesus is trying to get across? So this is how we'll do it today. Understanding the feeding is how we'll, we'll, we'll start, really trying to grasp that. And then we're going to see the reactions of the Pharisees and the, and the disciples to the feedings. And then, we're gonna, and then you have to get what's required because something's required here because Jesus gets a little frustrated. In the boat, did you notice? He's a little frustrated. He's like, really? Um, you're arguing over bread and um, I can make bread? I mean, why don't you get that? Don't you understand? I mean, some commentators think that the one loaf that they had was actually Jesus in the boat. Like they really had no bread, but Jesus is the bread of life. So Mark kind of wrote that in there going, the, Jesus was the one loaf. Now, I think that's kind of funny. I don't really know if that's true or not. But the fact is, if they had one loaf of bread and Jesus could multiply bread for thousands of people, I don't think you'd be tripping on one loaf of bread between 12 people, right? But they are. And Jesus is like, do you not understand? There's something required when you're exposed to Jesus. And this is why Jesus is frustrated. So let's look at this. First, let's understand the feeding. If the feeding of the 4,000 looks familiar, it's because just a chapter and a half ago, Jesus fed 5,000 people. He fed 5,000 people in a similar situation. This crowd was in a desolate place in the middle of nowhere. It's kind of like being in like long stretches between the Starbucks on I-5. Like there's like three of them. And like being right in the middle of the bathroom, the gas station, and the Starbucks. You're like, if I have to go to the restroom, I'm done. Like I can't, or I'll run out of gas. I, 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 it's a desolate place. If I go backwards, it's just as far as I, if I go forward. That's where they were at. They're in the middle of the desolate place. There's no bread. If they walked to bread, they would die. So they're stuck there. This is the same situation as in chapter 6. 5,000 people are following him. The disciples like Jesus, everyone's hungry. They're very far away from, from everyone else. We need to feed them. Same thing here with the 4,000. Both feedings, it says that Jesus looks at the crowd of 5,000 and 4,000, and, and it says this, he has compassion. He looks at this crowd that's gathered, and he says he has compassion. Now, that word compassion uh, in, in the Greek, it literally means his vital organs or his entrails. That's weird. What that word had, took on this metaphorical meaning to mean, it was like being deeply moved within, in the seat of his emotions. It was this gut-wrenching, heart-breaking emotion of compassion. The first time that Jesus had compassion on the crowd, he fed their spiritual need. He said, it said he had compassion on them, and then he saw this crowd like, like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to, to teach them. This was a spiritual need that Jesus was feeding. He began to teach them. And then when they got hungry, he had them sit in groups on green pastures, and he fed them by the still waters of the Galilee. You're supposed to read Psalm 23 into all of that. That's what Jesus was doing. He was feeding them spiritually. But the second time, it's purely physical. The disciples don't even bring up that they're hungry. Three days goes by, they don't eat food, or they have a couple scraps. Three days goes by, and Jesus notices their hunger, and he says, these people are hungry, we have to feed them, and I have compassion on them. I need to feed them. Now, and in an almost comical way, he turns to his disciples, and he's like, these people need to be fed, and they're like, we don't have any food. You would think that somebody would go, wait a second, you can make bread, can't you? I mean, we've seen you make bread. You can do something with bread. We only, I only have a loaf. I have a half a loaf. You can do it, Jesus. But none of them do this. None of them say, hey, wait a minute. Hold up. Can't you make bread? Now, why don't the disciples bring up the fact that Jesus can make bread? Maybe they didn't want Jesus to feed these people. 
the people that were following Jesus the second time, this 4,000, were actually Gentiles. Two weeks ago, we talked about what that meant. The first time, Jesus was feeding Jewish people. The Jews were following him. He was in the region of the Galilee. These were his, his comrades, his people. He's come as a Jewish savior. The disciples bring up everyone's hungry. The second time, three days goes by, the disciples don't say a word. Jesus goes, these people are hungry. They still go, what do, we don't have any food. Jesus here in this text, he's in a Gentile, the Gentile region of the Decapolis. The Gentiles were the godless oppressors of Israel. They were unclean and unfit in every way possible in the Jewish mind. The Jews called Gentiles dogs, and not in the hip-hop version of dog either, okay? These were a derogatory dogs. This is what they called them. So when Jesus says, I have compassion on these people, the disciples were probably like, wait, you have compassion on these people? Let them get their own food. They're not our problem. Take care of your own, Jesus. It's true that Jesus came for the Jews first, and that's why he fed the Jews first. He fed the crowd of the 5,000. But here, here in this text, Jesus feeds the Gentiles. See, the first text, the first time Jesus feeds the 5,000, it was to say this, Jesus is the true shepherd of Israel. He's the true good shepherd. But the, the second feeding breaks in, and this is actually pretty amazing. It breaks in and says this, Jesus is actually not just the Israel Savior. He's not just the, the true shepherd of Israel. He's the true shepherd of the world. Jesus is actually the Savior of the world. Jesus is the true shepherd. Jesus cuts across race, religion, socioeconomics. How? By speaking a language everyone can understand. Food. Like the universal language. That's what Jesus does here. He, he, he knows you, are, you will get hungry. You will get hungry by the end of the service today. Everyone gets hungry, no matter how poor you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how much money you have, or where you were born, or the color of your skin, you get hungry. Everybody needs food. And Jesus universalizes human need. He's the only one that can satisfy. He's the only one that can truly satisfy. See, that's kind of the subtext here. This, the truth is this. We're always looking to other things to feed us. We're always looking for things to feed us. Our job, we want our job to feed our souls. We want to find purpose in our careers. We want our spouse sometimes to feed our souls. Our family, here's the thing. You will destroy your job, destroy your spouse, and destroy your family if you're looking to it to feed your soul. Your job your family and your spouse was never created to support the weight of your human soul. Jesus is the only one that can truly feed you. He's the only one that can bear the weight of a human soul, who can control you without destroying you. There actually are hints of this in the Old Testament, that God promised that there would be one who would actually feed our souls. In Isaiah chapter 55, it says this, Come, anyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? 
Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. This is the promise of God. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But look at that last sentence. This is the real problem. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. See, this is the real problem in Mark's gospel. This is the real problem with these feedings. The last sentence is the real problem. Jesus says virtually the same thing in Mark. You have eyes, but you don't see. You have ears, but you don't hear. Like you see me, but you don't see me. You hear, but you don't hear. Now why? Why don't they see and why don't they hear? Well, look at, let's look at the reactions of the Pharisees and the disciples. The first reaction that's recorded in verses 11 through 13 are the reactions of the Pharisees. Now, the, the Pharisees... Um, came and demanded a sign from Jesus, that he was the promised Jewish Messiah. Now, Mark isn't recording the Pharisees' reaction to the feedings, but actually the Pharisees', act, uh, the Pharisees reaction to Jesus in general. Mark, the, the book of Mark that we've been studying is broken up, broken up in two acts. There's two acts in the story of Mark. Act one, chapters one through eight, well, the middle of eight, who Jesus is. Act two, what Jesus has come to do. Act one is full of miracles, feedings, walking on water. Act two, you get none of that. Act two, Jesus is on his way to the cross. Right in the middle here, Mark is summarizing what the Pharisees thought of Jesus. They walked up to Jesus and they said this. At the, at the, as the curtain closes on act one in chapter eight, Mark is summarizing what the Pharisees truly thought about Jesus. And what did they think about Jesus? They came and they demanded a sign. Jesus, give us a sign. Prove to us, Jesus, without a shadow of a doubt, that you are who you say you are. Prove it. Write it in the clouds, in the heavens. Remember they wanted a sign from heaven? Take away all doubt, all speculation, remove all the gray areas that we're struggling with. Prove that you're truly and really the Messiah. Prove it to us. And I don't know if you've ever had that thought in your head before. God, if you just proved to me that you're real, if you just proved it, if you just wrote it in the clouds, if you just sent a sign, then I would believe in you. If you just did something like that, I would understand. I would get it. Write it in the clouds. Send something. But Jesus saw through their demand for a sign. He saw through their demand to their heart's intent. See, the whole subtext of the first part of Mark is Jesus can read hearts. He's kind of cheating, okay? He can read their hearts. He knows what they're really thinking. And it says in verse 11, the Pharisees asked this to test him. Now, what does that mean? He knew their motivation. Jesus knew why they were asking. Their motivation of asking wasn't genuinely to believe They never really wanted to believe in Jesus. They wanted to trap him, to test him, and to destroy him. And Jesus saw right through their heart. They weren't asking to be convinced. They were asking to solidify their unbelief. They weren't going, convince me that you're the Messiah. They were saying, just solidify the fact that you're not. Show us so we can trap you. See, the real problem here 
The real problem here with the Pharisees is unbelief, not concealment. It's not that Jesus is trying to hide who he is from the Pharisees. He's done a very visible job to prove who he is. He's shown everyone through his miracles who he is. The problem with the Pharisees and the problem with many of us today is simply unbelief. We don't believe. One commentator said of this pharisaical unbelief, their unbelief can never be alleviated. This is why. On one hand, to force the evidence upon someone would make a faith response by its very nature impossible. If I forced evidence upon you and made you believe, that's not really even belief anymore. On the other hand, the unbeliever, despite the evidence, will always find grounds for unbelief. Listen to this last sentence. Especially if belief means abandoning the familiar, the source of security. Abandoning the familiar and the source of security. You might be here and go, we know what, I don't believe in Jesus because I don't have all the evidence yet. The verdict's still out. And I would say, okay, I'm super stoked that you're here. But let me say this. Maybe, maybe your request for more evidence isn't because you need more information. Maybe your request for evidence is because you need more faith. And here's why I say that. Because if you know, if you know, if you follow Jesus, and there's people in here that are Christian that believe this, and there's people in here that are not Christian that believe this. If you follow Jesus, I mean truly follow Jesus as your Savior, not just that, as your Lord, he may ask you to do something you don't want to do. Jesus may ask you to give up something you don't want to give up. Then, see, you don't have a, a, an evidence problem. You have a faith problem. You don't trust in him. And it's not an evidence problem. We can give you, we can march up in front of you all the evidence, all the people that have gone before you, that have trusted in Christ. But it's not an evidence problem, is it? It's really a faith problem. Like, if I follow him, then that means I have to give this up or that up. I have to start to find my identity in him and not this. You don't want to abandon the familiar. You don't want to leave your source of security. And there are, are many people that just hang on securely to past hurts. And that's one of the biggest obstacles. And it's, it's, it's actually very ironic because Jesus says he'll, he'll free you from past and from your hurts and he'll heal your broken heart. But the thing is this, Actually, our past hurts are kind of a, a security blanket for us. Things that were done to us in our past are actually the things that, that bring us the most security because many people define their lives by their past hurt and their past pain. It's like their reason for being bitter and angry towards men or women or the church or commitment. Their excuse for substance abuse or whatever. You know, following Jesus will, you know, you have to forgive if you follow Jesus. And for some people, that security blanket is where they draw the line. For other people, it's money or power or sex or career path or their creative abilities or potentials. See, this is exactly where the Pharisees were at. They knew if Jesus was the Messiah, he was a threat to their power and their structure and their lives. 
so they wanted to get rid of him. And I would say this, and I would agree, Jesus is very threatening because he demands it all. To follow Jesus means total surrender. We're not, we're not there yet, but we'll get there in a couple weeks. Jesus says, if you follow me, you take up your cross, not your golden cross necklace, not your, not, 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 not your golden cross you know, rosary beads. Those are, those are whatever. Your cross, I mean, those weren't those things then. They were a bloody cross. Death. You follow me, you die. End of story. Jesus is very threatening. He was the most threatening to the, most, the, the people with the most power. People with the most power, and, and you, that are very empowered. Jesus is a threat. Because he might call you to do something that you don't necessarily want to do. To live in a way that you don't necessarily want to live. And this is what the, the Pharisees' biggest problem with Jesus. Now, actually the most shocking part of the story isn't even that. It's the fact that the, the people that were closest to Jesus had the same problem with believing. His friends, his disciples are the ones who had the biggest problem in believing in Jesus. And that's the most shocking part of this story because they get into the boat, it says, and the disciples forgot the leftover bread they collected from the feeding, seven baskets full. They had seven Ziplocs or whatever full of broken bread and pieces and they're gonna take it on their picnic. So they put it in their backpack, they got into the boat, somehow someone forgot it. And they're in the boat all arguing. No, you forgot it. No, I told you I didn't have it. Well, I told you to grab it. Well, I, I have all this other stuff I'm carrying. It's your turn or whatever. They were just arguing back and forth in the boat. Jesus overhears this, and Jesus is a very good teacher. He's like a really good parent. He knows good teachable moments. They forget the leftover bread. So what does he do? He says this, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, this isn't like just random. He wasn't like just like uh, kind of going insane here and like just starts spouting things off like he has, you know, some sort of biblical Tourette or something. It's like starts quoting random Bible verses. That's not what's happening. He's, he's teaching them something, okay? He's like, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, they don't get it. They're like, he's mad. He's mad that we forgot to, I mean, I, I see the whole skit like a Monty Python type of skit. Like, if you've ever seen Monty Python, it, it could very well go down like that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not really good at my British accent. I'm still practicing it, so I won't break that out right now. It's still, you know, still working on it. But it probably went down something like that, like it, He's mad, told you he's mad, you forgot the bread, you idiot, and like, I didn't forget the bread, and Jesus is going, oh, oh my gosh. Now, what's, ele- what's the leaven of the Pharisees? That's, that's kind of an important part of this whole passage. Now, leaven, leaven was leftover dough, okay, leftovers. It was leftover dough from the previous week when people would make bread weekly. It was leftover dough that fermented and was added to a new lump of dough, and it acted like yeast, and it worked its way through the bread and shaped the bread and helped the bread rise and all of that stuff. It's leftover dough. So Jesus, because they left the leftovers, says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He's using this as a teachable moment. Throughout the New Testament, in every single instance but one, leaven or yeast is negative. It means corruption, unholiness, and danger. What was the leaven of the Pharisees? The leaven of the Pharisees was a blatant distrust and unbelief in Jesus, and a little bit of it spread through the entire life like cancer. Even them arguing in the boat, they made the whole boat scene about them. You see that? 
I didn't forget it. You forgot it. Oh my gosh, we forgot the bread. And Jesus is like, I'm in the boat with you. I have bread. I know what to do. But they're still arguing. They're still fighting. They made it about them. They took their eyes off Jesus. That cancer of unbelief has made its way through it to where they're blinded to Jesus in front of them in the boat. Now, the reason why you and I might just kind of brush over this because it happens so often in our lives. God does something awesome. The next week we forget it. And we're in desperation going, God, where are you? I don't even know if I even believe. I don't know anything anymore, God. They're the, in the same sort of place. But notice something. Notice that Jesus said, beware of both the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I find that very interesting. Why did he mention both of them? Because they both opposed Jesus. Listen. If you think that Jesus is the conservative American option to religion and that's your biggest stumbling block, I'm not going to believe in Jesus. He's like the conservative American option to religion and spirituality. According to the Bible, you would be wrong. Or if you think that Jesus is the liberal San Francisco option to spirituality, according to the Bible, you would be wrong. Jesus is neither. See, who is Herod? Herod was Herod Antipas. He was an ungodly man in the eyes of the religious Jews. He had John the Baptist arrested and beheaded, and his head was brought to him on a silver platter. You could call him the very, very liberal left. But who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were considered the religious and the conservative right of their time. And they both realized they needed to get rid of Jesus. Both sides wanted to get rid of him. You see how Jesus is neither the traditional moralist nor the universal self-expressionist? The gospel of Jesus is neither moralism or relativism. Jesus is not the conservative option or the liberal option. He's neither religion nor irreligion. He's totally and absolutely other in the Bible. Nobody can define him. So, the proper response to him as it says, the appropriate response to Jesus is not more religion, nor is it the construction of a new religion. The proper response to Jesus is something completely non-religious. It's faith. That's our response to Jesus. It's faith. Now, I say religion. Some of you guys are like, hey, what are you talking about, religion? My definition of religion, I know it's used positively like once in the Bible, but normally it's used negatively in the Bible. What I'm when I say religion, I mean do this and this and this, therefore I'm accepted before God. If I do this and I do that and I do this, I'm accepted. I'm in. That's religion. The gospel is you believe in what Christ has done. You've done nothing. You're actually way more wicked than you ever dared dream. But Christ loved you so much that he took your place on the cross. And all we do is believe and trust in him and we're in. We've said this before many times. It's not the religious are in and the irreligious are out, or the righteous are in and the unrighteous are out. It's the humble that are in and the proud that are out. You humble yourself before God, and you accept what He has done on your behalf, and you're in. But even here in this narrative, in this part of the story, they still don't get it. This whole section is about faith, and that's what's required. The last point, what's required? Faith is required. 
This is what Jesus is trying to do over and over and over again. Do you believe? Where is your faith? Do you not understand? Don't you get it? In Mark chapter 4, again, they were in a boat. A lot of fun things happen when they're in boats. They're in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. A storm kicks up, a big storm. Jesus is asleep on a boat, which is kind of a miracle because, you know, sleeping on a boat in the middle of a storm is a hard thing to do. But he is. He's sleeping. The disciples flip out, wake him up. They start crying and whining. Do you not care that we're going to die? Now, these guys weren't like, these guys were fishermen. These were manly men. They've seen storms as fishermen. This one freaked them out. This one, they thought they were going to die. So they woke Jesus up. Jesus stands up. He calms the wind and the waves. He says, sit down, shut up, storm. The storm listens to Jesus, which is another really cool miracle. And it's all calm. They're just like dripping with the storm still, and they look at Jesus. And Jesus says to them, why are you so afraid? And you still, still, this is only chapter four. They've seen amazing things. You still have no faith in me. And they were filled with great fear. That word great fear means they were more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. They're like, oh my gosh, I was afraid of the storm, but I'm way more afraid of you. Like you just told the storm to shut up, and it did. I'm terrified. Then they said to one another, listen to what they said to each other. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They've had four chapters, okay, to wrestle with this question. Who is this? that the wind and the waves obey him and the sea obeys him? Who is this that can feed 5,000 and then turn around and do it again with 4,000? Who is this that can heal leper, a leper's spots? Who is this that can raise the dead? Who is this that can make the deaf hear with compassion? Who is this that can satiate spiritual hunger and longing of both the Jew and the Gentile? And they come to chapter eight and the disciples are in the, a boat again but th- th- this time they're arguing if they have enough bread, and they still don't see. They see Jesus, but they don't see Jesus. They hear Jesus, and they hear what he taught, but they don't hear Jesus. They have all the information, but that's it. See, I can tell you how sweet honey is. I can tell you the way that it feels when it touches your tongue, and the sweetness of the taste buds and where you feel it in the taste buds and how sweet it is and how good it is. I can tell you all about it and you can have all the facts about how honey tastes, but you'll never really know until you try it. You can have all the information and all the evidence, but it's not enough. So last week I was in Boston and being in Boston, um, it was really fun, really cool city, but it reminded me of that movie Goodwill Hunting. So I went back and I watched it. I think in movies, and it's kind of weird. But anyway, I, was, I went back and watched it when I got home, and, um, and there's that scene where Will and Sean are sitting on, on that park bench. And Sean asks Will, you've, not, you've never, left, uh, you never left Boston, have you? And, um, and Will says no. And he said, because Will's a smart one, if you've, if you've seen this movie. Um, Matt Damon's character. It's a super smart one. Knows everything, a genius, can read books like The Robot from Short Circuit, like really fast, right? And he's super, super intelligent. And he says, you've never left Boston, have you? He's like, no. And then he goes in this, this really cool scene where he's like, if I asked you about art, you would give me the skinny on every book ever written. You tell me all about Michelangelo. 
You could tell me a lot about him, but he just says this, but I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. I bet you, can, you never actually, actually stood there and looked up and experienced it. He said, you've probably read about love and relationships, but you've never truly been vulnerable with another human in true love. And the reason why he says this is because all of that takes risk. Books don't take risk. You read it and you're done. But experiencing it, really going after it, takes tremendous risk. You don't really know, do you? See, it takes risk to really go, and that's why I think it's called a leap of faith. There's, there's risk involved in it. You might know about Jesus. You might know all the facts. You might come here. You might even like give and take communion. But do you know? Have you taken that risk to really experience? I know some of us are like, I'm afraid to take that risk because what it means. Yes, there's risk involved. But Jesus is the only one that satisfies our soul. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? It means you have to surrender everything to him. You have to completely put your faith in him. And this is not just informational. This is experiential. But do you see that you can? You can understand. And the reason why you can is because Jesus' compassion here is international. He feeds everyone. He feeds everyone in the book. I mean, he's feeding Jew, he's feeding Gentile, he's healing people that should never be healed, he's touching people and teaching people who should never be touched and never be healed and never be taught. He's doing it all because his compassion is international. And though the Pharisees want to destroy him at this point and Herod wants to kill him and the disciples still don't understand him, Jesus is undeterred in his mission. He goes, from this point on, we're gonna see he goes to the cross to seek and save the lost. At the cross of Jesus, at the cross, who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do comes into perfect clarity and focus. Because who Christ is, is the Savior. And what he's come to do is to die in our place. And the only one to truly understand Jesus was a centurion who was at the foot of the cross, another soldier, who gets what Jesus has really come to do. The centurion, who is a Roman soldier, Roman-trained soldier, standing next to Jesus on the cross, when Jesus cries out and he breathes his last on the cross, the centurion is the only one in Mark's whole gospel that really sees Jesus for who he is. Because everyone wants to make him a powerful king. Everyone wants to rush him and go, Jesus, you need to become the, the ruler of Rome. You need to take over for the Jews. The Roman centurion knows that this is a true, true warrior who's fought and won. This is the Son of God, he says. And Mark's gospel, no one silences him. It's like left there to go, yes, he is the Son of God. As we look to Jesus, we could put our faith in him. We could take the risk and and trust our lives to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for your love and your compassion toward us. We thank you that you're the that you know how to satisfy our souls, that you're the only one that can really feed us, that you give us free bread, free wine, without money, without cost to us, but at tremendous cost to yourself. You died on the cross to redeem us. I pray that you would um, speak
speak to hearts in here, that we would move from information to trusting, to surrendering our lives to you. God, I ask God, if there's anyone here that has never placed their trust in you and their hope in you and surrender their lives to you, that you would lead them to, to do that. They take that leap of faith, that step, and they would come to taste and see that you alone are good. In Jesus' name, amen.